0: it is an honor for me to be here and speak and to lead this wonderful church uh, our mission is just a bible mission which is to see people saved and save people grow and that's everything we ever want to do that's our heartbeat and we're so so excited hey we are uh, in a five week five topic sermon series called hey google and we've been going through some questions that people have looked up on Google, like, what is my purpose, and how do I stay resilient, and how do I forgive? Today, we are talking, um, speaking on the last topic on depression. And uh, this is a a painful subject to speak on, but a very, very relevant one. Now, before I launch into my sermon, I want to let you know what I'm doing here, like what my job is as a preacher. My job is is not to give a lecture. My job is not to give a TED talk. And my job is not to make this a therapy session. My job is to proclaim the word of God and the God of the word. And if I, listen, if I disappoint you because I didn't talk about brain chemistry, if I disappoint you because I didn't talk about psychology enough, that's okay. But if I fail, To point you to your wonderful Savior. And if I fail to point you to the God of all comfort, that's failure. So we're talking about Jesus. We're talking a lot about Jesus. My task is to point you to Jesus. And also let me just say this before we pray. For some of you here, this is going to be harder than for others. I see you. We recognize you. Thank you for being so courageous. You're heroic, and God is with you and loves you. Let's pray. God, I pray that today you would bless this message, that you would use it to comfort, heal, bandage up. God, I pray if there would be any pain spoken, there would be the pain of surgery that leaves us whole and not the pain of carelessness or hardness. And Jesus, in all things, you are the great healer, you are are a great shepherd, and you walk with us. So I pray and we invite your Holy Spirit to work on our hearts, work in us for your glory and the beauty of your bride. Amen. So I, uh, you know, had some time to read and was reading a little bit about this subject. And uh, you're like, where'd you get the time? I got to be honest, there's this thing called screen time, reducing it. And so I was, had a lot more time. I've got brought my screen da- da- time down to like under an hour, I was reading, reading. And I came across this uh, quote that I want to uh, share with you, and I think it perfectly paints what we're doing today. And the quote is by John Lockley, a Christian psychologist, and he says this, "Being depressed is bad enough in itself, but being a depressed Christian is worse." And being a depressed Christian in a church full of people who do not understand depression is like a taste of hell. Being Christian is worse for the depressed. Why? Because as a Christian, you feel like you're supposed to rejoice. You're not supposed to feel like this, so your guilt rises. Being as a, a Christian and being a depressed Christian, you're walking, and you're supposed to have the presence of God in your life, but you feel like God has abandoned you. Uh, being a Christian feels like, "I'm a bad Christian." And then, why is it bad to be surrounded in a church? doesn't understand? Well, because the church oftentimes doesn't speak on this, and when something is not spoken of, it always makes you feel like you're the only one. Or Christians have spoken on this subject, but said a lot of stuff that hurts. But here's what I think I want our church to be. Here's what I want us to be. I redid the statement, and this is the goal. What if this is our reality? Being depressed is bad enough in itself but being a depressed Christian is to live and draw on Christ's immeasurable love. And being a depressed Christian in a church is to be surrounded by people who listen well, love deeply, show mercy, and unceasingly pray for one another. I don't know. What, what church you want to be part of? <laughs> uh, I pray that this sermon is just one step in this direction, I think, this is our next 10, 20, 30 years. I plan to be here in the long term, if God allows me. I'll be bald, bald in some point. And, but, but I want our church to be a hospital. I want our church to love and bless and pray. And this is where we're going today. Like, if anything, I say, like, where we, we end up is I, I pray that as a Christian, you find resources, heavenly resource within you and without, uh, above. And, a, and our church would be a place of love. understanding. So what is depression? Um, One definition of it that I found, it goes like this, depression falls under a classification of a mood disorder. It's considered a condition of general emotional dejection and withdrawal. It's marked usually by diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities. Symptoms of worthlessness, fear, sadness, hopelessness, and others often accompany depression. But I want to show you in the Bible where we meet this darkness. Of course, there's no such word as depression in the Bible. This is, in fact, it's a pretty recent word. But we see all the symptoms of depression in this incredible, unique psalm, Psalm 88. And I want to read this with you today. And I want to go over what we're seeing as the symptoms in a way of defining what depression is. So Psalm 88 goes like this. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mehiloth Leonith. I think that's an instrument. That's what I read. A mascal of Haman the Ezraite. So Haman wrote this psalm. He was one of the three Levites who was appointed by King David to be a minister of music. He was a worship leader. He praised God. He wrote songs, but he also spoke from his heart. And you guys, there is no passage in the entire Bible like Psalm 88. And you'll see in just a moment why. And he writes this, and he says this, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Can we just talk about what we're seeing? First, day and night he's crying. Let's talk about insomnia. You can't sleep at night. And then he says, it's day and night, and it's repeated and in the present, meaning that it's long-lasting, unrelieved pain. You see, in Psalms 30, chapter 30, verse 5, it says that weeping may tarry for the night, but what comes in the morning? Joy comes in the morning. That's usually the promise out there, is that night may be tough, but joy comes in the morning. But for this man, there is no joy in the morning. It's crying. It's sobbing. And then we read, I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life drawn near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like the one without strength. I am set apart from, with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Verse 3, overwhelmed, a resignation. I'm, it's just too much, God. And then he says, I'm without strength. That could be weakness, physical weakness, or that can also be just a loss to get up, to get living life, to do stuff. I am without strength. And then numbness. He's counted as one who is slain. He, he's like the dead. He's like, that's all I am. I'm like the dead. I don't feel anything. And he ends with for being forgotten. He feels forgotten by God. Then in verse six, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. And by the way, he's going to say you," because he does recognize in some part that God is sovereign over all. Now what we, when, we, when it comes to evil, we don't say that God necessarily causes evil, but everything's within God's allowed control. In verse seven, your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. We see in verse 6, isolation. He's alone in the pit. He's in a prison of his soul. He's sad. We see that he has no friends, no one to comfort him. He's lonely he cannot escape he's helpless and he feels trapped and then he goes on in verse 10 i call to you lord every day notice that the conversation with god keeps on going which is a key i spread out my hands to you do you show your wonders to the dead Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? And what we get here is he's saying, look, I'm basically dead. And that's a loss of meaning and purpose. As a worship leader, I praise you. But God, where I'm at right now, I can't. That's where I'm at. And then he says in verse 13, but I cry to you, Lord, for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you, maybe the saddest verse of all. Why do you, Lord, reject me and hide your face from me? Total abandonment. Hang in there. We're almost done. From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. And you have completely engulfed me. You have taken me from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. We get there. Pain from the past. From youth. And we get there. Utter hopelessness. Darkness is my closest friend. All I know All who knows me, it feels like, is darkness. This is the saddest, most bleakest psalm in the entire Bible. It ends with maybe a cry of hope, and there's not a single word of joy. There's not a single word of hope. There's no psalm like this. Um, What is depression The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders says five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous functioning. At least one of the symptoms is depressive mood or two, loss of interest or pleasure. And then that diagnostic manual lists all the symptoms. And those were the symptoms we just read. We have somebody who's in darkness. And yet, so that's depression defined there's something so powerful about psalm 88 you ready a lot of people have looked at this psalm and they're like what is this for like usually every psalm ends with god i'm in trouble but but i hope god i'm in trouble but i know you're coming god i'm in trouble but this psalm has nothing to tell us except that it's in the bible See, some people have this idea that Christians just get along, sing along, sing kumbaya, and that's all we do. There's nothing more real than Scripture. God included this, and here's what it means. If Psalm 88 is in the Bible, here's what it means. Because remember, who inspired the Bible? God. So here's what this means. That God was with with Haman in his pain. And God heard him in his pain. And God used his pain, didn't waste it. Here's what this means that you may feel like you're going through, through the most, the bleakest, gloomy season of your life. And Psalm 88 is God who gives you words. See, Psalms are author's words to God, but then it becomes God's words to you. And Psalm 88 is God saying, I am with you in your deepest pain. I hear you, I heard it, Psalm 88, and I'm not even going to waste it either. The second thing this teaches us is that Christians get depressed too, that God's children get depressed too. Some have talked about demonic possession, like somebody's depressed because there's a demon inside of them. Listen, I don't know every instance and case of depression and what lies behind it. But here's what I do know 100% is that if you are a child of God, the Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. And if God has taken up residence in you, I cannot and do not see how the Spirit of God can be roommates with the devil. God is inside of you. Christians get depressed as well god's children go through seasons of darkness as well and maybe this is all you need to hear today that you're not you're not a bad christian that something's wrong with you that you're not a bad christian because throughout time and in the bible you have Elijah, you have Moses, you have Jonah, you, you can just keep on going. And then through Christian history, we have seen men and women of God go through this season. And the first thing that most Christians feel is a, same, a feeling of shame and a feeling of bad. And yet, God's children get depressed. The third thing this teaches us is notice that in Psalm 88, we do not see... Any shame or hiding it. This doesn't have to be your secret. Now, you don't have to tell people. But if this is something you're going through, because it often helps to let someone else know this doesn't have to be your secret. And number four, notice there is no confession of this darkness as sin. Psalmist lays his heart out before God. So what are some causes? So, that, so, so here, the first point is that that's the definition of depression. Christians get depressed as well. Here's the second point. What causes depression? What causes darkness? I'm gonna list just five that I've read upon. Read up on. Number one, life situations. Oftentimes you can go through a loss, unemployment, something terrible has happened, repeated disappointment, failure, and it just kind of stacks up and plunges you into darkness into hopelessness and despair. It can be physical. Um, something with your brain being altered. Look, sin or the curse of creation is alive. And so we get sick in our bodies. What would we, why would we say that somehow that curse cannot affect our brains? A sin is fully pervasive. Third, it can be psychological, your thought patterns. Fourth, it's behavioral. You're isolating, you're withdrawing. Or maybe it's some sort of addiction. Five, it's spiritual. It can be a lack of trust. It can be lack of faith. It can be love for a cherished sin. It can be guilty conscience and separation from God. Let me real quick stop right here because this is is controversy, all right? I already feel it. Just, just rising. Let me give you a few things. Um, we have to be very careful when we diagnose ourselves or others. In fact, I want to make the case that what we should most often do is practice a whole lot of humility, listening and compassion. Uh, sometimes we can become extreme and we can get dogmatic. Dogmatic means I take my idea, my opinion, my preference, my experience, and basically equate it with God's word and say, it's like this. Oftentimes, this is such a varied experience and people have such varied experiences of depression that as soon as you say it's like this, they're like, but I had it this way. I tend to think that what we got to do is just, just be humble. Let me give you an example, two ways we got to sort of be in the middle. Uh, one is some say it's the result of sin. And I put little two ends of the spectrum. When it comes to the Bible, there's a bigger question we're talking about. And that is, what is the relationship between sin and suffering? In the Bible, we do see a few cases. They're isolated of personal sin and the consequence of suffering. So, for example, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. They try to deceive God and this is New Testament because people are like, it's just the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament. They deceived God. They tried to look like they were giving all of their possessions away, and they fell dead. But then we also have Scripture that tells us there's no relationship other than that the creation is cursed. Uh, once disciples pointed to a blind man and said, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, Neither. Uh, the way I think about it is over here we have uh, Proverbs. You know the book Proverbs? It, it has this formula behind it, implicit in Proverbs, and that it's this choose good, good things will happen. Uh, do foolish things, bad things will happen. That's sort of Proverbs. Is it true? On the whole, it is. But on this end, we have Job and Psalms. In fact, some of Psalms is like, God, the wicked are prospering. What's going on? God, the righteous are suffering. What's going on? Where's the connection? In fact, Job is an interesting Bible story because it shows us when Job had everything taken away from him and he was in deep darkness, his friends came, gave him advice. And his, their, the friend's advice was this. Job. God punishes the wicked. There's problems in your life. God is punishing you. Job, God blesses the righteous. You don't look very blessed. So you're obviously not righteous. And Job all along is saying, my hope is in God. Uh, My Redeemer lives. What is a better statement is to say that all suffering is the result of the general sin of Adam, the plunge creation into curse. But don't be so dogmatic. Do you know the best way or the worst way to hurt somebody? Get on one of these ends. And if you're here, ready to just, either in your life or others' lives, and ready to judge and condemn, there's that end of the Bible. It just kind of pulls you back into the middle. But, you know, we see how this can be hurtful, right? But that can be hurtful, too. Because sometimes it could be a cherished sin. And God, in his immeasurable love, is putting his hand of discipline. He's withholding his joy to get you to wake up. Now, I know that in the amazing United States of America, that doesn't compute. Because God is, like, just a tad better than Santa Claus. What do you mean, God disciplines? But God, God does. Uh, So that's a balance that we have to walk. We have to admit the reality of sin, but if there's nothing in your life that's in particular God is pointing out and shining a beam on, that's not it. That's not why you're suffering. Now, the second balance we need to walk is the balance between spiritual and physical. Sometimes we are all spiritual. Depression is spiritual. Um, Remedy is spiritual. Spiritual. And we dismiss the fact that we live in a body that affects us, right? Have you noticed how, like, I don't know about you, but I'm far more patient with my kids when I get a good night of sleep. What happened? Like, that's an obedience thing. It's a soul thing, right? Fruit of the Spirit, patience. But then it's kind of affected by sleep. Um, But we can be sometimes so spiritual that we deny the fact that sometimes depression can have physical basis. And here we're going to do some controversy Sometimes medication is necessary. The antidepressants are needed and often administered by godly, God-worshipping men, women. And uh, oftentimes there's a lot of shame about antidepressants because it's like, I don't want to tell anybody, I don't want to do this, I don't know if this is wrong. It's rarely right or wrong. It's a question of wisdom. Uh, Nobody's ashamed Of taking pills for cholesterol but there's a whole lot of shame around antidepressants and it's God's common grace to his children to get you back on your feet but here's another problem we can be so spiritual oh excuse me (laughs) so physical we are so biological so neurological so psychological that we dismiss the very reality that as a whole we are also spirit and listen, no amount of medication will get me to stop believing the lies of the enemy. Uh, no amount of medication will get me to forgive and let go. Uh, no amount of medication will get me to stop trusting so-and-so or such an idol. And so I believe that what we need to do is we need to walk this line carefully so there's different causes and usually it's a whole lot of different kinds of causes but now i want to talk to you about something we can do Uh, three things that i want to talk about we can do um before i go into this and talk about what we can do um can god heal yeah God can heal. Now listen, I want to just quickly tell you, there's, I, I always look at it as two types of miracles. God has two types of miracles in his hands. One miracle is the one that we all love, the supernatural instantaneous healing. I, I love that miracle. But God has another miracle. It's through the natural and in a process. Supernatural and instantaneous and through natural, I made up that word, don't Google it, through natural In a process. I wish and hope that this was always the case. That we can pray and God relieves it. But here's what I have realized. That God prefers often to take us through a process. It never makes sense until you go through it. Because what I want is deliverance. And God wants my development. I want to be taken out of it. And God wants for me to grow in it. And sometimes, and sometimes... God prefers to take us through a process, but His name is still power. His name is still healing. His name is still life. Just because you're going through a process and you're not seeing instant relief doesn't mean that God is not at work. We sang that second song, I'm like, man, this is my sermon. That second song, that even when I don't see it, you're doing what, God? You're still working. Um, does God heal? run from any preacher who says no but god often prefers to create beauty and glory in you through a process of refinement when stuff bubbles up and we learn to trust in him and we learn to put away satan's lies and we learn to have our identity in christ god often does that so i'm going to talk to you about things we can do in the process of healing but i do not discount that god can instantaneously bring healing amen Say amen. First thing we can do is our lifestyle. Choosing the things of God. I have four points for this first point. Number one, simple things like food, exercise, and sleep can help. I was reading Elijah's story, and Elijah was on the run. He's a prophet of God. He felt like he was the only one now. And Jezebel was trying to murder him. And he got so angry. And he's, so, he's in the gloomiest of times. And he's like just, just, just in a dark place. What do you think God does for Elijah? I feel like God brought like some crazy miracle. God brought him bread. Uh, God brings him a nap. Which I would love. And God also gives him a word. But you see, in a season of darkness, it's so typical for us to numb ourselves. Netflix, I mean the options are big. Social media, endless scrolling. that we sometimes forget to make use of God's ingredients of common grace, of good exercise, good diet, good sleep. And that's Elijah's story. Uh, The second thing under this first topic, first line, is community. Um, depression tempts us to isolate and become lonely. Um, And in in the great United States of America, I think it's really easy to live lonely and be isolated. One, we have a virtue of self-reliance. And I wanted to rant a little bit on self-reliance. You know, there's no such thing as self-reliance. Um, you know, we talk about how we're so reliant on ourselves. We don't need anybody. Like the only thing I can think of that is really self-reliant is that show on Netflix called Alone. Have you ever, do you know about it? Okay. This, it, they, they put, take contestants, move into some Arctic and tell them with nothing that you have to survive hundred days. Okay. They're eating squirrels. They're eating grass. Some dude found the carcass of an elk and is living inside of it. That's self-reliance. What we do is like, oh, I don't need anybody, but let me call Uber. I don't need anybody, but when I run out of gas, let me dial AAA. I don't need anybody, but if I need some money, let me open up a credit card. And what we see is that our society didn't destroy reliance, it destroyed community. Because we're still reliant, we're just simply reliant on people who do not know us and we don't know. And it's so easy to separate. It's so easy to start living alone and not know anybody. And do you know that one of the most, the, the thing that helps so often in stories we read is community. Church, I I know we bug you with connect groups. In January, we're going to bug you with discipleship groups. But we need community. Loneliness is an epidemic, and every single person who's alone is an emergency. And today, maybe, just maybe, you can take a step towards community. Third, under this first point, I say this because I have a lot of points. Make sure you're walking with Jesus. But walk with Jesus and get this, without rules. Um, I realize that we love to make rules. Our rules, not God's rules. God's rules are delightful and beautiful and can only bless you but we have our own rules that we made up about especially our walking with Jesus I have uh four boys thank God for four boys plenty of sermon illustrations like every time they're messing up I'm like okay that's great sermon illustration right there about what my my second boy Daniel Something's up with him. He loves to make rules. Like he just legislates rules. Albina will tell you he has rules for everything. He has rules for how you can ask for ketchup around the table. He has rules where you sit around the table. Who sits in the car, where they have to sit. And one of these days, uh, he was brushing his teeth. And I, we recorded the, the, what he said. Albina says, uh, he says, we need to brush our teeth morning and night. And Albina, my wife, says, yes, that's the best. And Daniel says, Jesus made that rule long ago. (laughs) Um, He loves rules. I also realize that we love rules. Especially how long we should pray. How long we should read the Bible. Preferably long. Right? But oftentimes when you're in darkness, all you can do is maybe say a couple of words. And sometimes all you can do is just read a couple of words off the text. Don't beat yourself down with your own rules. But this is spiritual food. And prayer is a conversation with God. So keep going. And don't worry about how much you should pray. Because then you want to pray for 30 minutes. You pray for 30 seconds. You're like, I'm a bad Christian. And you don't even pray. Do what you can. Walk with Jesus. Keep talking to him. Keep reading his word. In one verse here. In a prayer there. Amen. The fourth thing is Pointing to others, serving others. One of the things that I, when I was reading a book, I was really surprised is um, the author, of course, talks about how in depression, everything becomes about us. Not because we're selfish, but because we're in pain. Have you ever had like a real physical pain? You can't really think about anybody else or anybody else's problem or worry about anybody else. You just think about your pain. And in depression, we become so self-absorbed, not because we're a narcissist, because we're in pain. We feel that numbness. We feel that wrongness. And this author um, interviewed people who've gotten through depression, and they had to finish a sentence, and the sentence said, "What Um, I started to feel better when, and I was shocked at two things that people have said, and I wanted to read you what they said. I started to feel better, began to change when my daughter became very sick. It forced me to see outside my own world. I felt like things began to change when I had a pastor who kept the bigger picture of God's kingdom in front of me. Depression made my world so small. When I saw that God was on the move, I began to have hope. You see, we often just think about us because that's where we're in pain. I don't, not saying here, go serve like crazy. But what if you said, how are you to one person today? What if you found one person who's maybe going through what you're going through and just heard them out? The secret to encouragement is in the encouraging. Oftentimes, the secret to being comforted is in comforting others. Now, I don't, these four things, food, food. Rest, exercise, community, walking with Jesus, you know, focused on others in some small way. uh, These are not big steps. You're a hero for taking small steps. Don't worry about big steps. Take small steps. And number two, when you don't feel like you're feeling it, don't feel like a hypocrite. You know what I realize is that oftentimes feelings get in the way of our obedience because we don't feel it. So I don't praise God because I'm not feeling it. I don't say thank you because I'm not feeling it. I don't say how are you because I don't care about that person. Um, Doing something without feelings, but that something is obedience to Jesus, does not equal hypocrisy. Doing something that's for Jesus without feelings equals obedience. Praising God even when you don't feel like it is obedience. Loving others even when you don't feel like it is obedience. So don't beat yourself down that you feel like a hypocrite. You're being obedient. Hypocrites don't think like that. Hypocrites think, I know I'm deceiving. I just need somebody's praise. But if you're there, you're like, God, I don't feel it. But like Peter, when Jesus asked him to come into the boat, you simply say, at your word, I obey. At your word, I obey. Um, Second point is healing and trusting Jesus. Uh, Some of our hearts need healing, real healing. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, okay, everything stops, game over, this is important. Guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. The, most, the, the best way to guard your heart is to have it healed and entrusted to Christ. Healed and entrusted to Christ. Healed and entrusted to Christ. And healing, you know, there are things that might have happened in the past. Things that maybe you've done or things done to you that affect you today. And your heart needs a healing. And healing is always tough. I realize this. That oftentimes... Um, If you are hurting, to get to a better place, things need to get worse. Have you noticed that principle? I realize I have a toothache right now. Not right now, but usually. comes at night. And I have a toothache. To get my tooth fixed, guess what needs to happen? Things have to get worse. You need to go to a human rights uh, violator called the dentist, (laughs) and you need to get the dentist to work on you, and then you get a bill for it. Things get worse, and then things get better. You know the reason why we tolerate so often our hurt, our pain, our issues? It's because to get better, things have to get worse. You have to open it up. You have to talk about it. You have to pray. You have to cry. You have to ask for forgiveness, or you may need to give forgiveness And a lot of us are just like, I'll tolerate my heartache. That's just too much. And you're right, it's a lot. And you're right, it's hard. But a wholesome heart, there's no comparison for it. A healed heart is what I pray and hope for you. But the second thing is to entrust Jesus. And listen, I'm looking at the time. I can go for another two hours, so I'm going to speed up. But trusting Jesus... um, One of the reasons some of the strongest emotions we experience often comes from a mistrust. Uh, Let me give you an example of anger. When we think about anger, we usually think about yelling, vein popping, red. That's hot anger. There's also something called cold anger. It's quiet. It's unseen. It may not even be unbeknownst to you but it sits there inside. And it manifests itself in quiet isolation, in quiet bitterness, in quiet withdrawal, in sure resolutions to never try again, I'm never gonna care again. And I realized the reason at the very root for a lot of the anger is because something was wrong Something was done Something was done that was wrong, and there's an anger response. Good. But then we took that, and we started to live with that, and we never moved on. And the reason is, and this is something that's true in my life, I don't want to give up anger. You know why? Because as long as I'm angry, the wrong done to me is in perfect view. As long as I'm angry, the wrong that was done is in conversation. As long as I'm angry, there's a righteous wrath that's kind of spilling, you know, secretly and in hidden ways against this wrong. But if I trust Jesus to be just, I don't trust him to be just. I'm the just one. I don't trust Jesus with justice. Because if I give this wrong to Jesus, he's going to forgive. He's going to move on. He's going to sweep it under the rug. So I'm better off holding anger to myself. I don't trust you, Jesus. I trust you with justice, but not for this wrong. I want to have it to myself. Anger and trust go together. Or we can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm so angry. There's so much pain in my life. But Jesus, you are far more just. You are far more wise. I'm going to trust you with this wrong. I'm going to start to live in freedom. Uh, You can talk about shame. You can talk about fear. You can talk about any number of things. But Jesus, we learn to trust Jesus. So a healed heart, which is work and hard work, or trusting Jesus. And third, uh, one last thing I wrote for myself here. You know that song, Listen to Your Heart? Oh, you guys are way younger than I am. The way we should replace listening to your heart is with speaking to your heart. Tell your heart Jesus is just. Tell your heart Jesus is enough. Tell your heart that Jesus is your meaning. Tell your heart that Jesus is your identity. Tell your heart that Jesus loves you. Um, the last point is thoughts. Taking captive our thoughts. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you know where the enemy is doing his greatest damage in our lives? With lies. Lies. Lies about who God is. Lies about who we are lies about other people lies about our situations and we are instructed to take captive every thought that means challenge it take hold of it and say is this true or is this not i I don't know i was just thinking about buying a tv if you go to buy a tv you spend a whole lot of deal a whole lot of time testing reading labels comparing prices trying to determine is it good but the first thought that pops into your mind, you buy. I'm worthless. You buy. My life doesn't have meaning. You buy. God has abandoned me. You buy. I don't have time, but read Psalm 77. David is in a struggle. And he has all those symptoms that we talked about. And then he says this incredible verse, and he says, and then I started to think, basically, he didn't say that with those words, will God abandon me? Will God's promises never come true? And he started to question everything that was coming into his mind, because he was taking captive every thought. And everything that was a lie was dismissed, and everything that was true was a seed in your heart. challenge, take captive your thoughts. Why do you think the way you think? Why? I uh, have to give you one more example of my children. Elliot, he's my youngest. Oh, excuse me, I have the younger son, Lucas. He was just born one week ago. <laughs> and uh, I love Elliot, you know, he's, he's, my, he's my boy. And um, I love telling him things and i notice how much he believes me i'll say elliot you're so fast and he'll drop everything he's doing get up put his hands like this and run the reason he's running like this because sonic the hedgehog runs like this but the idea is he's running so fast that the air is pushing his limbs backwards and The guy is barely breaking three miles an hour. I say, Elliot, you're so strong, and he flexes and he puts his fists out like this. I say, Elliot, you're so kind. And he puts his hand on me, or he just nods. You know what I realized is his identity is tied to how he feels and what he does. And he believes his dad. Do you believe who you are in Christ? You see, we have sort of a mixture of identities. We have a before Christ identity. That's when we were without Christ, rebels, orphans, running away from God. That's one identity we had. And today... You can have identity rooted in who you were before Christ, or you can have an identity that's rooted who you are in Christ. That's where you are. So everything that says you're worthless is a lie. Everything says that you're not loved is a lie. This is your identity. This is who you are. Oh, man, the way Elliot runs, I'm thinking, what would happen if Mercy Church, what would happen if you would truly believe that you are forgiven? How we would run to forgive? How we would run to squash the shame that's in our hearts? Oh, if we believed that we were loved, how we would quickly spread out our limbs to hug. Uh, you have an identity. Take captive every thought. I'm going to end with this. In John, the Gospel of John, we read this interesting phrase. John wrote this Gospel, and then he talks about himself in the yellow highlighted. His disciples started stared at one another at a loss loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved... So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This is John writing about himself. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Five times he refers himself like this. And you know, for the longest time, I just heard two responses to this. Snickering, giggling, like John thinks that. That's so funny. He thinks he's so Big, big shot. And the other one is like, oh, how could he believe that about himself? And I think what's amazing is that John really believed this about himself. I think it's amazing that John couldn't mention himself or introduce himself without saying, I'm loved because that's who I am. That's my identity. That's who I am. I'm loved. And to every person who has trusted Jesus. After your name goes loved. Every single person's beloved by Jesus. Amen. You challenge every thought. You take on every thought with the power of God and his word. You anchor yourself in your identity Jesus loves you that's who you are loved beloved and that's for every single child of God so I want to pray right now and um, I want to pray for two groups of people one is maybe you've never talked to Jesus prayed to Jesus came to Jesus repented of your sins before Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. I want to pray with you. I won't call you to the front. I won't embarrass you, but I want to pray with you. And the second group of people that I want to pray with is that if you're somehow affected by this darkness, it could be something you've gone through, something you're going through, or some loved one that's going through it, and you just need strength. But I want to pray with you. We're going to pray right now. And this is not an ordinary moment in our service that we just need to check off. This is the presence and the power of God working in our lives. So with every head bowed, let's just bow our heads right now. Hey, if you're here and you want to give your life to Jesus, it'll be the greatest moment of your entire existence. Or if you're here today and you're in some way affected by depression and you just need God's courage you need his voice. You need to know his presence. Hey, if that's you, would you raise your hand, one or the other? I want to pray with you right now. You can raise your hand. Amen. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see hands. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We trust you. We believe in you. And God, I pray that if anyone here is going through a dark, bleak season of their life, God, that you would comfort with your presence, God, that they would have the courage to make small steps, they would have a heart that's healed and trusted to you, that they would be firmly rooted in who they are in you, and Jesus, I thank you for your love and your blessings, in your name I pray, amen.